0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Tom Parker, author of the book Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, Why Respect for Human Rights is the Key to Defeating Terrorism. Tom Parker has spent the past three years as a European Union-sponsored advisor to the Office of the National Security Advisor in Baghdad, Iraq, prior to which he served as a counterterrorism strategist at the United Nations Counterterrorism Center and as the Advisor on Human Rights and Counterterrorism to the United Nations Counterterrorism Implementation Task Force, where he co-authored the Secretary General's Plan of Action to Prevent Violent Extremism. Over the past decade, Tom has worked extensively as a consultant on post-conflict justice, security sector reform, and counterterrorism projects around the world, including assignments in Chad, Colombia, Georgia, Guatemala, Kyrgyzstan, Lebanon, Mexico, Nepal, Peru, Rwanda, Sri Lanka, Tajikistan, Thailand, Uganda, and Ukraine. He has also served as the policy director for terrorism, counterterrorism, and human rights for Amnesty International USA as the special advisor on transitional justice to the coalition provisional authority as a war crimes investigator with the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in both Bosnia and Kosovo, and as an intelligence officer in the British Security Service. Tom has taught courses on international terrorism as an adjunct professor at Bard College, the National Defense University at Fort Bragg, Yale University, and John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He is also a member of the adjunct faculty of the Defense Institute for International Legal Studies and has been an occasional lecturer at the Joint Special Operations University. He's a graduate of the London School of Economics, the University of Leiden and Brown, and has held research fellowships at Yale and Duke Universities. Tom, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much, Beth.
1: This is quite a book. It covers a massive amount of material. How did you come to write it? Um, that's
0: that's quite a long answer, actually. Um, it was a long time in the sort of gestation process, but the real... Genesis of it was my experience uh, with the Coalition Provisional Authority in 2003 uh, in Baghdad in Iraq. Um, I'd worked in counterterrorism uh, before I went to Iraq as a security service officer in the UK, which you, uh, which you mentioned. Um, and so I'd, I'd had sort of frontline experience working in as, a, as an investigator on these issues, but I hadn't really ever taken a step back and thought about them sort of from a, a, a more philosophical or strategic level. Um, but in Iraq, I had the opportunity to see us really alienate a population in real time and see the negative blowback of a lot of the policy decisions we took and how it played out in terms of the violence that was that we, we were ultimately on the receiving end of um, When my time in Iraq came to an end, I actually had the, the incredible good fortune to be offered um, the, the uh, research fellowship at Yale for six months um, to basically sit down and think about the experience and i my focus in that period was very much on how governments can poss- you know can act to drive terrorist organizations how government action can often be a primary driver of uh, terrorist activity and that that was kind of the germ of this project and that's going back 15 years Um, And as I sort of did some research on it and I was in a PhD program for a while and I I just read more and more around the subject and and the idea took sort of uh, more tangible form over time. And in the past five years, I finally got to the point where I I really thought I had something to say and and, uh, the material to support the arguments that I wanted to to, to lay out. And obviously the experience of working for Amnesty and working for the UN um, as well, they, they all helped inform how I came to think about the subject. Um, because I, you know, by by the time I was in, in my forties, uh, I'd had a pretty strange career, and, and that had given me a pretty unique perspective. Because I'd worked, you know, very much on the hard side of counterterrorism, and I'd also found myself working on in the human rights world as well for an extended period of time. Um, and that gave me a sort of crossover perspective that was quite rare within the national security conversation. Um, and it, it helped me sort of approach questions that had been discussed by many other people before. But it enabled me to approach it in a way where I could discuss it differently, um, particularly in terms of looking at the efficacy um, rather than the morality of a human rights-based approach to countering terrorism.
1: I wanted to read a piece from the introduction that I think really summarizes this terrorist trap you talk about, and, and ask you to comment a little bit about it. So, in the in the introduction, you say the whole point of this book is that there is a lot of information available about terrorism terrorist groups, and individual terrorists, yet despite a well-documented history of terrorist violence stretching back 150 years or more that has afflicted almost every corner of the globe, despite shelves of published memoirs, articles, and statements written by terrorists of all stripes, despite all this data, state after state confronting terrorist, terrorist violence for the first time seems to treat it as an unknown quantity and to replicate the same mistakes made by so many guardians of law and order before them. Indeed, so inevitable do do such missteps seem to be that Irish academic and terrorist expert Louise Richardson has even posited the existence of a predictable pathology of state overreaction, which equally and inevitably plays right into the terrorist hands. Is that the trap?
0: That's The Trap in a Nutshell. And I, I'm so glad that you, you um, mentioned Louise Richardson's contribution because that one, and it's a throwaway line in a, in a book that she wrote called What Terrorists Want, which is a fantastic book, great primer on the history of terrorism and packed with really useful insights into, you know, into the motivations that terrorist groups have, have, have embraced. Um, she has this one throwaway line. It literally is a sentence in the book where she talks about the pathology of state overreaction. And that really resonated with me. And it became very much the lens through which I looked at this project. Um, and initially I wanted to sort of find if that was true. And I, so I went out and I looked at many, many different countries and the way that they responded to terrorism. And, you know, at the end of, you know, literally 10 years of research, um, in fact, perhaps closer even to 15 years of research, I couldn't find a single example with the possible exception Um, maybe of Norway after the Andreas Breivik um, incident and the Atoya massacre. I can't really think of any country that didn't overreact when confronting a serious terrorist threat for the first time. And and I think the the outlier issue with, with Atoya is probably that it isn't a serious terrorist threat in the sense that it was, while a horrible incident, it really was falling out of a clear blue sky and it was related to one individual who was caught immediately. So it really was a sort of a, a single, what do they call it, a black swan event. Um, and so it's not a great example of, of, a, of a state underreacting. What is nice about it as an example is the Norwegian government at the time was very explicit in its desire not to overreact to the event. And that that's why I mention it. But if you look at most other states facing a serious terrorist and an enduring terrorist threat to their authority um there is this tendency to, to to reach for the coercive tools in the toolbox to, to push back against it and that is exactly what most terrorist organizations explicitly want them to do um, and i'm glad you also mentioned the focus in the book on the, you know, the voices of the terrorists themselves i mean there is an incredible wealth of material that's been written by you know terrorists and whether whether it's interviews communiques biographies Uh, manuals, all of these things, they're available. You can read them for yourself. Um, And they pretty much have about six things in common. There's, if you like, a doctrine of how terrorism works. Um, And so the elements of that doctrine are asymmetrical warfare, uh, fighting a war of attrition, um, propaganda by deed, this idea that the the types of attack contain a message, Um, the idea of a revolutionary prototype or or sort of an inspirational figure, Uh, someone like Che Guevara or or Osama bin Laden who explains the the movement through their actions and uh, uh, embodies the values of the the organization, and then provoking an overreaction and building the legitimacy of the organization at the expense of the government. And those are sort of the six pillars of terrorist doctrine. Um, And terrorist group after terrorist group after terrorist group all around the world talk explicitly about setting out to provoke that overreaction. Uh, and that's the trap right there. I mean, that's that's the uh, that's the critical pivot point for terrorism. It, it's it's a form of, and again, this isn't this is not uh, my original insight. Um, it's a form of political jujitsu. The idea is you take you know as the much weaker force, you take the power of the strength, and you turn that power. Uh, the, sorry, the power of the state, and you turn the strength of the state against it. So you're essentially using its strength against him. And the, the guy who actually came up with that um, descriptor is a journalist called David Fromkin. And he was writing in the 1970s. He wrote a, a very good article for foreign affairs on the strategy of terrorism. Um, and it's still one, of, to my mind, one of the best um, simple introductions to terrorism you could read. It's only 10 pages long. It's incredibly accessible. It's really well written. And even though he's writing about, essentially, the Marxist terrorist groups of the 1970s, Barter-Meinhof, Uh, the Red Brigades, uh, to a certain extent, the Provisional IRA, and some of the more historical terrorist organizations like Lehi or um, uh, the FLN in Algeria, you know, he's still, everything he says stands up 40 years, 50 years later, when you compare the the things he's talking about to the experiences that uh, counterterrorism officials and, and for that matter, publics, have lived through um, in in subsequent iterations of terrorist threats.
1: The first part that you talked about with the overview of terrorist tactics, I think the concept of overmatch really fits into this piece of the book, meaning many states have overwhelming capabilities compared to terrorist organizations. And you can hear this as a common frustration expressed, you know, how can we not beat this threat? We have all these tools, but yet we're not successful. And tactically, this is on purpose. This is part of the asymmetric threat. Can you talk a little bit more about what you found there?
0: I mean, people talk about asymmetrical warfare very glibly. Um, oftentimes, I think, without really understanding the full implications of that concept, every terrorist organization knows that it's fighting an asymmetrical conflict. It knows it is by far and away the weaker of the two parties involved in the, in the, you know, in the struggle. Um, and that's why, for example, um, Mao Tse Tung used this analogy of the War of the Flea to describe And he's talking about revolutionary um, struggle and, and terrorism forms part of that struggle. It's not the whole of that struggle, but it's a metaphor that's been adopted by lots of terrorist organizations. Um, it was the title of a book uh, written by Robert Tabor uh, about the uh, Cuban Revolution um, and a book that was shared very explicitly, actually. And this is a, an important point um terrorists learn from other terrorist groups and they learn very very explicitly so lots and lots of documented examples i mean literally hundreds of documented examples of terrorists setting out uh, in one country to learn from the experiences of another um and i'll give you one example of that the the book the war of the flea was actually distributed by the uh, provisional ira army chief of staff to the members of the provisional ira general council when it was published um because the uh, the the uh, Uh, IRA saw the value um, in the ideas that were being discussed about the Cuban revolution and their applicability to the struggle uh, in in, in Northern Ireland during the troubles. Um, But we see that again and again and again and again, explicitly ideas being picked up from one conflict and one movement and applied in another. Um, And I'll give you some, some different examples of that. Um, uh, Nelson Mandela, when he was uh, running uh, spear of the nation, uh, which was the militant wing or the, 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 the armed wing, if you like, of the African National Congress. One of his chief advisors was a man called Arthur Goldreich, who'd been part of the or uh, one of the um, uh, underground uh, militias of the uh, Zionist movement during the British Mandate in Palestine. So he actually had specific advice from somebody who cut his teeth working in the underground in Israel, um, and he learned from that. He also talks in the Long March uh, to Freedom to Learning explicitly from the experience of the Algerian War of Independence, and also the Philippines, uh, independent, well, the, the um, uh, resistance movement in the Philippines uh, against uh, the Japanese during the Second World War. Um, and so people are constantly, constantly learning from the uh, experience of their predecessors, all repurposing and adopting um, training materials and um, doctrinal materials from previous uh, terrorist campaigns in different countries. Um, if you read al-Qaeda training manuals, you'll actually find that Mao Tse Tung um, and um, um, uh, General Giap, the Vietnamese General Giap, are actually cited more than any other single examples um, in in these manuals about uh, successful uh, terrorist tactics. Um, so there's this great sort of uh, attempt to learn from previous experiences. So that's the first point, and and this issue of Um, provoking an overreaction and benefiting from that and using missteps by the state to embarrass and undermine the legitimacy of the state you're fighting. You know, this is baked in from the beginning. It's discussed very explicitly. Um, One of the first documents written about terrorism as a political tool is something called the Kashyachism of the Revolutionary, which was written by a a Russian uh, nihilist or sort of anarchist revolutionary. Um, It's quite hard to, to... to accurately catch his political philosophy, uh, called Sergei Neichev, and it was written in 1869. Um, and it, this catechism is basically a series of numbered rules for revolutionaries working in the underground trying to overthrow the Tsarist regime in Russia. And one of these one of these catechisms is leave the most bestial officials alive because they will drive the people to inevitable revolt. Right, that, that's 1869. Um, to put it uh, sort of in, a, in slightly more common terms, there's a great quote from an early member of the Provisional IRA, Des Long, who, who uh, said, uh, "Every fellow who gets his head cracked open by a policeman's baton is a potential recruit." Um, by Tullah Massoud, as a more modern figure still, uh, who was the leader of the uh, Pakistani Taliban, he had this uh, great comment: "Every drone strike brings me three or four new suicide bombers." Um, so this is this is something that that terrorists have understood and. Um, literally uh, internalized and baked into their activities pretty much right from the beginning. Um, and you hear such interesting echoes. Right? Terrorists, you know, they, they, they don't just wake up one morning bad to the bone, right? Most people involved in terrorist organizations have joined for a purpose. Um, and their motivations are, oftenly, uh, are often grounded in personal experience um, and, and negative experiences at the hands of the state. Um, and they're very explicit about that and they talk about that. And it seems to me that states ought to learn that lesson. I'll read you two quotes. These are two quotes from people living and operating basically a hundred years apart, in fact, about a hundred and almost a hundred and fifteen years apart. Um, one is a French anarchist called Emile Henri, who carried out a very famous terrorist attack in Paris. He threw a bomb into a cafe um, at the Gardinor, the the, the, the Cafe Terminus. Um, and he was caught very quickly and he was put on trial. He's very famous for when the judge rebuked him for, um, you know, attacking innocent civilians, he famously responded, there are no innocents. So he's a, he's a very sort of, uh, iconic figure in, in, in sort of terrorist history. Um, and in his trial, when he was asked why he did it, he said this, you have hanged us in Chicago. You have decapitated us in Germany, garroted us in Jerez, shot us in Barcelona, Guillotine us in pisson in Paris, but what you can never destroy is anarchy. And a couple of things I'd like you to note about that, the internationalism of this individual, and this is the 1890s we're talking about. This is a long time ago. But, you know, he's talking about a global movement. He's talking about events that have taken place around the world. He's talking about government use of force, whether that is state um, authorized by you know, the due process of law, Um, or not, but he's still talking about state force, state use of power. Um, Now I'm going to give you a quote. This is a quote from a speech by Osama bin Laden in 2004. Allah knows that it never occurred to us to strike the towers, but after it became unbearable um, and we witnessed the oppression and tyranny of the American-Israeli coalition against our people in Palestine and Lebanon, it entered my mind that we should punish the oppressor in kind. Now, I'm not saying that there's an inevitable... There's a justification for the actions taken by either Omar al or Osama bin Laden. But I'm saying there's a reason for them. Now, you may not accept those reasons. You may reject those reasons. But they had a belief system and a, and, and, and a, and a theory, a reason why they did what they did. Um, and in both instances, it's rooted in a deep opposition to a state that they believe is hostile and unfair to them. Right. Um, And so if a state falls into the trap of behaving in such a way that amplifies that message, then it's only going to make that message more powerful. And that that's the trap right there.
1: Another tactic you discuss in this section related to the war of attrition concept is how terrorists can provoke a need for constant readiness, which you describe as both expensive and exhausting. Do we fully understand the economic aspect of terrorism?
0: No, not at all. And, and again, this is an idea that actually goes back to a pamphlet written by another Russian anarchist uh, in this time in the 1890s uh, called "The Terrorist Struggle." Um, and you know, the, this is the concept that you essentially, by creating tension, um, a, a tension on resources and on manpower and on concentration and on morale, you wear down the enemy because they have to be alert and present and active everywhere. Whereas you as a very small group get to choose the time and the place where you will actually pop out of the underground and carry out your attack. And then you can disappear back into the in, in, into the, uh, the the underground and, and recoup, rest, and decide when you're going to do it again. Meanwhile, the state has to be constantly vigilant. And that costs money and it costs time and it costs effort. Um, terrorist organizations understand that attrition is not just about killing people. right? They understand that there is a financial cost um, that states ultimately can find very, very hard to bear. So for example, I'll give you some examples of terrorists explicitly pursuing that angle. Um, The provisional IRA in its mainland bombing campaign in the 1990s specifically targeted commercial centres on the British mainland because they understood the high cost that the British government was going to pay, one trying to protect them, but also if one of the attacks succeeded. So you may recall there were two, actually three very large uh, bombs that went off in central London uh, in the 1990s, two in particular, the Baltic Exchange bombing um, and the uh, um, Baltic Exchange and uh, I think Liverpool Street was the other one. Um, They did immense damage to the financial heart of the city of London. Um, And that had a huge impact on The potential of the you know could have potentially had a huge impact on 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 the British economy, because if you're a bank and you know this is the 1990s, this is long before Brexit is even uh, you know a a a moat in the eye of of of, um, Nigel Farage. Um, This was a time when Frankfurt was growing as a a financial centre. That European financial systems were becoming more and more integrated. And if you were a a bank that had had your trading floor disrupted twice by massive bombs in the city of London, you're starting to think, should we maybe think about moving our operations somewhere else? And that was a deliberate IRA tactic to make the cost, the financial cost, the economic cost to the British government so high to staying in Northern Ireland that the British government might consider withdrawal because the cost was too high to pay. Um, I was in the security service at the time of those incidents, and I remember how close we came and how effective a tactic that was and how thinly stretched we were trying to prevent that third shoe from dropping. And, in fact, there, it, it, there was a third attack. There was a fourth attack that was successful in South Key, but there was a third attack in uh, Canary Wharf, which is another major financial center. And the IRA managed to get, a, tr- uh, I think it was a van bomb, right next to the main tower, and they were challenged by a security guard and uh, one of the, uh, the, the member of the active, IRA active service unit got out of the car, pointed a gun at the security guard, the gun jammed and they panicked and, and fled. And so the bomb didn't go off. And that was really about as close as we came to seeing the city of London eviscerated um, and by the city of London. I mean, the financial center eviscerated by um, a third attack. And that might have been enough to tip people into moving away from London and over to Frankfurt. And that would have been catastrophic for the United Kingdom. And the, the City of London is one of the, the primary um, income generators for, for the UK. So, you know, that, that, there's always been an understanding with terrorist groups about the financial implications. Um, and bin Laden, likewise, you can, you can see bin Laden talking about this, this idea, and likewise al-Zawahiri um, as well. The financial drain that invading Iraq and Afghanistan has had on the United States. Um, And of course, the financial collapse that we had in the uh, second half of the 2000s, you know, Al Qaeda was very quick to link that financial collapse to the strain that they have put the United States system under. Um, So attrition can absolutely, it can be about morale, it can be about men, can be about material, but can also be about money. Um, Very closely allied to the concept of of attrition is the concept of a long war. Um, Most terrorist organizations understand that they're in a generational struggle. Um, terrorism tends to be something that is directed against democratic governments. Democracies tend to think in five-year cycles um, and they tend to uh, change uh, administrations over policy debates where there's you know, a, a clear debate about we should continue with this or we should back away from it. Let's not forget that um, Barack Obama was one of the senators who voted against um, the Iraq war, right? And, and that vote in his early days as a senator, was a you know, large part of the platform that he ran for president on and ran for president successfully on. Um, so terrorist organizations understand that they have a temporal advantage in, in most of the struggles that they engage in. There's a famous uh, sort of um, uh, saw that you hear uh, people talking about in Afghanistan, you know, the, about the United States, the, the, the Taliban would say, you know, you have the watches, but we have the time. Um, and so this asymmetry, it, it, it operates on lots of different levels, intersectional levels, albeit, but but lots of different levels. Um, and pretty much at each level, it favors the terrorist group rather than the government.
1: I want to read another quote from the book. You say, terrorists are often individuals who in other circumstances might be making a positive contribution to their community. What is the role of empathy in dealing with this problem? And can you talk more about that statement?
0: So that's really interesting that you, you picked that out. So again, I, I'm afraid I have to admit that that insight is not original to me. Um, uh, the, the, the specific identification of empathy as a potential driver, um, uh, the, the credit for that goes to, to, to one of the doyens of terrorism studies, Paul Hoffman. Um, so it's not, my, I mean, it's not my original insight. Um, but I did find it really interesting and I went out to try and find as many examples as I could of people who had essentially been um altruistic or had altruistic reasons for becoming involved in terrorism. And that that sounds like that that, that doesn't make sense that it's a non sequitur, but but the reality is, a lot of people do become motivated by a sense of mission, the sense of trying to help their community. And one example of that I would give you is the large number of people with backgrounds in the medical profession that become involved in terrorism. Right? the current head of Al Qaeda, I am an Al Zawahiri, is a doctor. Um, uh, the the um, one of the founders of of, of the PFLP um, was was a pediatrician. Um, one of the founders of Hamas, uh, Al Rantisi, was was a doctor as well. Um, che Guevara uh, was a medical student. Um, you, you see a lot of people who have a background um, in what are essentially altruistic professions getting involved in more in more violent political action. Um, and Che Guevara actually has a very good line about this. He says, "You know, I trained as a doctor. You know, and a, as, as a doctor, we learn to treat the disease, not the symptom." Um, and you, you can understand the thought process where somebody looks at their community. I mean, it's not a given that the state is always in the right. I mean, I, I, one of the, the most powerful experiences of my life as a young security service officer was taking part in what we called at the time, the Irish background briefing course. Um, and this was a week that you spent and we don't study Irish history in in school in the UK. Um, so growing up, I didn't know anything really about Northern Ireland or the Northern Ireland conflict or the historical um, background to the, the existence of Northern Ireland. I mean, this was all something I didn't know much about. Um, and I'd had a really profound experience with, with uh, Irish terrorism in that at 21, I had been in a building that was blown up by the IRA and had been, thankfully, not, not seriously injured, but I'd been you know, blown off my feet, knocked unconscious um, by an IRA bomb blast. And that was why I ultimately joined the security service when I had the opportunity. Um, and so I, you know, I was pretty sure I knew that the IRA were bad, you know, bad eggs, and uh, absolutely what they were fighting for was wrong. And I was 100% comfortable that, that I was on the right side. And I did this one-week briefing course, which was really well done. We, we, we had you know, academic professors come in and talk to us about Irish history. They took us back 600 years of Irish history, back to sort of Henry VIII. Um, they talked about, uh, you know, obviously more contemporary history. They talked about the Northern Ireland civil rights movement. Um, they talked about the Easter uprising. They talked about the Irish war of independence. Um, and we, we, they brought in representatives of the Irish government. We had speakers on the course from the Angarda Shikana, which is the Irish police force. They even brought in a couple of undercover agents that were working in different terrorist groups in Northern Ireland and brought them over to give that, that personal perspective to the young officers. It was an absolutely phenomenal course. It was brilliant. Um, but I remember leaving on the Friday evening to go home and just thinking, my God, no wonder they ate us. Because actually, Irish nationalists had a point. And if you look at the way that Irish Catholics were treated in Northern Ireland in the 1960s, you know, it was outrageous. They were second class citizens. And yes, they lived in a democracy, but it was a democracy designed to ensure that the 40% of the population that was Catholic were denied a voice in government. And they were excluded from employment opportunities. They were excluded from housing opportunities. You know, it was every aspect of their life, they were second-class citizens. Um, And so it's unsurprising, absolutely unsurprising, that that bred resentment. Add to that, and this is another thing that many people realize about Northern Ireland, or at least about the Troubles, is the initial response in the 1960s in Northern Ireland in the Catholic community was a non-violent response, explicitly inspired by Martin Luther King Um, and the civil rights movement in the United States. And that's why they adopted this uh, Northern Ireland Civil Rights Movement uh, association in in, in Belfast and in Londonderry. Um, And it was an explicitly non-violent approach to trying to bring change to Northern Ireland. And it was meant with extreme violence and force by the the authorities, by the Protestant controlled authorities in Northern Ireland. And there's a very a symbolic incident called the the the, the uh, that took place at Bentollet Bridge in January 1969. It was a peace march. Um, I forget whether it was going from Belfast to London area, London area to Belfast, but it essentially gets ambushed um, by unionists, um, and the marchers are very very badly beaten um, at this place called Bentollet Bridge. And there were two people involved in that march, two sisters called Marion and Dolores Price, um, and they had been involved in the non-violent. Peace movement. They would, however, go on after that experience of being on the receiving end of Protestant violence to join the Provisional IRA and become active terrorists. Um, Bobby Sands, a very famous member of the Provisional IRA who who died in a hunger strike, you know, he, he talked about how Burtollet Bridge was the was the radicalizing moment for him. And so we see time and time and time again that um, an experience of state violence is often one of the reasons why people become involved. In terrorist organizations. So I think that's quite important to understand. Um, people are often inspired by seeing members of their community mistreated. Um, and I think that's ultimately the sense uh, of this idea of empathy or altruism um, being a potential part of the makeup of somebody's decision to become involved in terrorism. I mean, having said all of that, a lack of empathy and a lack of sympathy for another group. Is also what allows you to use violence against them and particularly against somebody who may not be directly responsible for the wrong you feel you've suffered so you know this concept of empathy or altruism you know it it, it, it's not all-inclusive it just explains or hopes to explain aspects of a decision-making process it doesn't mean that they are necessarily you know saintly human beings that that's not the point of it Um, the point of bringing this up is to say that their motivation can make a lot of sense and a lot of logic and can be motivated by positive impulses when looked at from their perspective. None of that, for me, changes the absolute wrongness of using indiscriminate political violence to try and change things. And I, I'm very, very clear on that. Um, but I do think it's important if you want to try and prevent terrorism, that you understand at a granular level what makes people decide to get involved in terrorism? And that's a really, really complicated question. And it is different pretty much for every single people, or at least a confluence of different facts with different weights, um, play different aspects of that decision that different people make. You know, it's a really, really complicated thing. And, and you know, models of radicalization, they're, they're, they're all pretty, um, I think, pretty useless. Uh, you know, they, they give you insights, but they have very little predictive quality because, it's incredibly hard to predict what will matter most to a person and what particular instance would land heaviest with them or what particular experience will land heaviest with them.
1: Well, you've set me up for my next question um, really well because in part two of the book, you really evaluate and revisit a lot of the social science and the attempts by social science to understand The motivations or the process that someone goes through to um, becoming violent in this way. And um, you also have some thoughts that you share in the book, even about terminology, such as the use of the word radicalization. And I was hoping you might talk a little bit more about about that and your feelings about um, what you've observed from the larger efforts by social science to understand this problem.
0: Um, so the uh, let, let's start with the terminology first. I mean the, the, the key point about the term radicalization and I, I heard myself use it uh, you know in, when we were discussing the previous question. Um it, it's not quite the right term, right? There's nothing per se wrong with being radical. Right? The suffragettes who wanted women to have the vote were radical. The civil rights marchers were radical, right? There is nothing intrinsically wrong with being a radical person. A lot of positive world, a change in this world has come because of radical people and radical politics, right? Um, so I, I I, think it's very dangerous to use the term radical as a pejorative. Um, more carefully, we typically, in this line of work, use um, a term like um, violent extremism leading to terrorism. VOLT um, is is, is a, a popular acronym that is often used to try and capture this concept. But the thing that makes terrorism wrong and and, and distinguishes it from peaceful, radical protest, is the violence, right? And, and I think when you're talking about um, the processes that get people involved in terrorist organizations, we've really got to focus in very tightly on that particular issue about the, uh, that radicalization to violence rather than radicalization per se. Um, so I think that's the important point that I would want to, to, to raise about terminology. Um, regarding all of these, these different social science ideas. Um, you know, I'm tremendously impressed by the range of so- social science um, research and the insights that have come out of that research that have been uh, conducted in the last 20 years. Um, and the reason that I wrote this section of the book was I wanted to capture and simplify to a certain extent all of this research for the lay reader. Um, I wanted to bring it all together in one place so that somebody could see all the different ideas that are out there uh, in terms of ways to understand why people get involved in terrorist movements and why terrorist movements have uh, a certain amount of longevity uh, and also you know some of the reasons why they fail as well um, and i I found that I thought that would be a really useful exercise I found it really interesting to do um, one of the things though that i 'm very careful to say is that these different ideas and insights don 't form a holistic whole right they give you insights the way when I was um uh, lecturing at the uh, Joint Special Operations University. This was what I was talking to them about. And I'd say to the, to, to, the, to the operators, you know, guys, what I'm offering you here is a bucket of ideas. I can't tell you that all of these ideas will be applicable in every case you encounter. Um, I can't tell you that some of these ideas will be more applicable than others. All I can tell you is this is a whole bunch of interesting research on how to try and understand what you might be encountering. Um, and that can be very useful at the macro level, at the strategic level, as you try and engage a community. It can also be incredibly useful at the micro level, as you sit in an interview room trying to get a terrorist to open up about what, what they know and why they've done what they've done. Right? It, it, it's all about trying to understand people's decisions and why they might have been pushed to make a particular decision. Um, you know, We often talk about push and pull factors, um, and some some of the reasons why people become involved in terrorism are... Are Almost purely situational, um, you know. They, they they get involved because they're members of the family, the same family. The you know, Northern Ireland there's there's a long history of uh, uh, nationalist and republican families that, that uh, generations may have been involved in in you know, different uh, uprisings, whether it be 1916 or, or uh, uh, there were iterations of the IRA active during World War II and in the late 1950s and early 60s. Um, so you might have several generations of a family involved in Republican politics and, and indeed IRA politics. Jerry Adams, uh, the former uh, head of Sinn Féin, um, you know, as a case in point, his father was, uh, was an IRA activist, actually was, uh, if I remember rightly, uh, shot and wounded in a confrontation with, with um, the, the British authorities um, in, in the 1940s. So, you know, you, you often have this situational thing of social networks that, that, that draw people into, um, into terrorist organizations Um, because they've got family members, or it might be uh, people that you went to school with, or it might be members of a sports team. Um, You know, the social network could form many, many different types. Um, If we look at the 9-11 attackers, you've got a a small group that went to to university together in, I think, graduate school in Germany. Um, You have a number of the uh, Saudi muscle hijackers that went to the same mosque or were related. Um, So you see these, these tiny situational connections. But then you also have people who, you know, despite sharing... Identical circumstances, brothers, for example, who grow up in the same household, um, who don't actually go down the same path. And a great example of that would be someone like, um, I think it was Mohamed that You may recall there was a, a series of uh, killings of uh, uh, French soldiers and, and Jewish children in Toulouse uh, by, a, by a, an Islamist extremist. Um, and, you know, he was eventually caught and, 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 uh, by the French authorities. Um, but his brother, who grew up in exactly the same household, household works for a multi-faith organisation and married a Jewish woman. Despite the fact that they grew up in the same place with the same influences, the same community, um, they went down very, very different life paths. So you know, sometimes situational factors can be determinative, and sometimes they just aren't. Sometimes psychological factors can be determinative, and sometimes they're not. There's this quest for significance. Um, uh, the the the, the, the uh, attempt to sort of, you know, find out who you are and to have significance and value in the world can be a, a very important driver. Sometimes it's not so much. Sometimes the desire for adventure can be a very important driver. Um, sometimes it might be, as I say, this experience of abuse. Uh, sometimes it might be the experience of seeing your straightened circumstances relative to another community that is favored in the society that you live in like at that experience i was describing in northern Ireland between protestants and catholics um so there's a whole range of different things that that, that might come together uh, again louise richardson talks about a a lethal cocktail um of, of different things that come together to to persuade somebody that violence might be the answer to their problem um and it's going to be different for just about every person but if you are aware of all of these different insights on all of these different ideas, as you're reading a somebody's biography, if you're you know, reading someone's file, you start to get, uh, see opportunities, right? You see opportunities, whether you're an intelligence officer that might be trying to recruit somebody, whether you're an investigator who might be going in to interview somebody, you'll start to see ways into a conversation um, to try and get somebody to talk, try and get somebody to, to, to think again, um, or at least to, to, to start to understand the person that you're you're uh, investigating or, or trying to recruit. So, I mean, this is the, the, these sort of insights for me, at least when I was writing the book, I thought they had real practical utility, but that utility stops when you try and go too far and turn them into a science. Cause they're not, this, this is very much an art. Um, there's, there's no algorithm that is going to be, you know, like, um, you know, like a Marvel superhero movie. There's no algorithm that's going to predict That this person, because of these seven factors, is going to turn out to be a terrorist. It just doesn't work that way. It's way too complex a human process to to, to bring to bear a sort of a predictive algorithm or or, or 10 or 11 predictive insights that will tell you whether or not somebody will ultimately turn out to be a threat or not. It's not like that. Um, These are just insights that will help you try and find a way to understand the phenomenon you're studying whether that's as a professional or as an academic.
1: I want to move on to the last section where you talk about countering terrorism within a human rights framework. And reading this, it made me think about, uh, how do I put this? There's there's some assumptions when we talk about counterterrorism, that there can be this idea that as a state, you can't address terrorism without, for a lack of a better way to put it, getting down in the mud a little bit. Uh And... There have been times in history of feeling that these threats must be countered by any means necessary. And you really push back on this. And I want to ask you to talk about why the rule of law is so important and why you believe lawful responses to violence are able to be effective.
0: So, I mean, you're absolutely right. And it it is a trope in counterterrorism, this sort of pseudo macho, you know, tough guy, swagger that, you know, we, we just have to be hard men, right? You know, and you heard it with Dick Cheney's famous, we're going to have to turn to the dark side. Um, uh, Jose Rodriguez, who was the, uh, uh, I think he was the head of the, uh, was the director of operations or head of the clandestine service of the CIA, had this, this expression he used about, you know, government's going to have to put its big boy pants on. Uh, you know, and the, these kind of juvenile um, framing techniques that you hear all the time, and you hear it still in modern, modern day politics, particularly in, in, in North America, um, they, they don't help you at all, right? Because it shows a complete lack of understanding of the phenomena that you're up against. The way I see, there's two things to say about human rights in the context of counterterrorism. The first is the red lines that human rights um, law creates are red lines that prevent you from doing stupid things, right, making silly mistakes, mistakes you know, like falling into the trap that's been set for you that can then be exploited by the, the group that you're trying to defeat. And there's a great quote from David Petraeus that I love to use. David Petraeus, the uh, American general who went on to be the director of the CIA, uh, who had firsthand experience of this um, in Iraq. Uh, and he, he famously said, "You know, Abu Ghraib and other situations like that are non-biodegradable. They don't go away. The enemy continues to beat you with them like a stick. Um, and this is a great phrase. I love the non-biodegradable part of it. Um, but Petraeus understood that when you made these mistakes, when you cross these red lines, when you torture people, when you kill people, you know, these are not acts that happen in isolation. They ripple out. They ripple out and they cause future problems. Um, and if you stay within a human rights framework, you're not going to avoid all of those problems. You're not going to avoid giving offense. And sometimes you are going to have to use quite strong measures to prevent somebody with a gun, for example, running down a street and shooting other people. Um, At some point, you may have to use lethal force to stop an attack that's in progress. Of course you will. Um, The point is that you have to calibrate the way that you use your force and your resources in a way that is effective and doesn't make things worse. It's not a difficult concept to grasp. Um, So that's the first point. Um, One, that human rights can stop you overstepping the bounds of making mistakes. The second point is you can actually do a tremendous amount within a human rights framework. Human rights law is actually pretty, um, uh, what's the right phrase? I mean, it it is remarkable, it accords remarkable latitude to states responding to terrorism, right? Effectively, investigative resources are limited, limited, really, for the most part, only by the requirements that they're defined in law, that due process is observed in their application, and that they're used in a manner that is reasonable, necessary, and proportionate to the threat faced, right? That's not a high bar to meet. Under human rights, international human rights law allows and envisages the use of things like undercover agents, right, agent recruitment. It envisages the use of electronic surveillance. It envisages the use of beacons, uh, 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 visual surveillance, audio surveillance, eavesdropping devices, intercepts, um, false flag operations, you know, there is a remarkable amount of latitude for law enforcement and intelligence officials to operate within and stay entirely compliant with the human rights framework. Um, I can't, as a professional, ever remember an occasion where I was preventing from, prevented from doing something that I needed to do because of a human rights standard. Now, I, I was in this world at a time when, particularly in the UK, we didn't talk in terms of human rights. We talked in terms of you know, the British law. Um, uh, human rights, international human rights law, the European Convention on Human Rights was only incorporated in British law in 1998 as a matter of law. So, as a young officer, for me, it was a conversation about what was legally permissible and what wasn't. Um, but if you were to take a step out of domestic law and look at the international level, um, there's absolutely no doubt that the international community and organizations like the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights understands and believes it's important to protect the rights of state citizens to ensure the full enjoyment of their rights, you know, including their right to life, but their right to, 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 to freedom of belief and conscience and assembly and all those other rights that are guaranteed by international human rights law, that the state uses the lawful, the lawful resources at its disposal to prevent attacks on their citizens. Absolutely, that is that is anticipated. And that the states may use intelligence and security resources to do that. So th- those are the two pillars of, of my argument, right? One, that human rights law stops you from going too far and falling into the trap that's been set for you by the terrorist organization. And then the second, that actually you could do everything you need to do within the existing framework. You just have to make sure, again, that you do it lawfully, with due process, and in a manner that is reasonable, necessary, and proportionate to the threat faced. And that, that's not that hard a bar to meet, as I said.
1: So reading this book, it seems that you have read everything that seems to have ever been written on terrorism. And you quote <laughs> so many leading scholars in this book. Yeah. If you had to pick your top three, whose work has influenced you most in, in your thinking?
0: Oh, that's such a mean question to ask. Um, oh, I, I, I have three, and I'm going to regret naming them because I'm sure I'm leaving people out. Um, but the three off the top of my head, and we've already mentioned one of them, Louise Richardson's What, what Do Terrorists Want? Because of that one phrase about the pathology of state overreaction, that, that was a critical aha moment for me. So I think that's a fantastic book. Um, Audrey Kurth Cronin's How Terrorism Ends is another fantastic book, which I'd highly recommend. Um, you, you, but just between those two books, you would get a tremendous overview of um, the, the, the way the terrorist threat has evolved over the last 150 years and some cracking insights into you know why terrorism starts and, and how terrorism can be defeated. So th- those are two absolutely stellar books. Um, a book that's very close to my heart is Clark Macaulay and uh, Sophia Moskalenko's book Friction. Um, which isn't so well known as the other two. And it, it's a book that looks at uh, the social science of radicalization through the lens of Narodnaya Volya, which was a Russian anarchist movement in the, uh, uh, the uh, 1880s, that um, uh, was actually responsible for the, uh, the assassination of, of the, the Tsar of Russia um, and was, was very influential in the thinking of subsequent uh, terrorist organizations because it was able to be so co- consequential um, at least in terms of, uh, of attracting attention to their cause, if not ultimately um, in achieving the political goals they sought, although one could absolutely argue they laid a foundation that Lenin and the Bolsheviks uh, built on. And by the way, Lenin's older brother, Alexander, was a member of the Rodnaya Volya and was executed by the Tsarist regime for his role in a, a terrorist plot that they had uh, developed. So that book, Friction, I would really, really recommend as well. I, I, I thought it was fantastic. It's so accessible, so interesting. But there's a there's a million other books that one could mention, both academic and general. I mean, uh, Looming Towers is a great book. Inside Terrorism by Bruce Hoffman is a great book. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's just you know there's there's, there's thousands and thousands of really really good books out there now um but but i would urge anyone who's interested in the topic you know it's very easy to disappear down a very specific rabbit hole um you know there, there's such so many good one subject books out there um you know uh, thomas hegghammer's new book about abdullah azam is a fantastic fantastic book but it's you know it's a very narrow focus clearly uh, abdullah azam was osama bin laden's mentor um you know but but to really understand terrorism, and this is a criticism we hear a lot within the academic community over of, of a lot of the research that's been done in the last twenty years, is, is it's very narrow, you know. And, and for the, the you know, for the last twenty years, it's pretty much been mostly focused on is, Islamic extremism because that's where the money was. Uh, and now I'm sure we're going to see a slew of books about right wing extremism, right? Um, because that's the fashion. And, and I think if you really want to gain insights. It, it's worth taking a step back and trying to take a longer view and a, and a more holistic view about terrorist movements around the world over the past 150 years, because they all learn and, and, and are informed by the people that have gone before them, both the, the tactical and strategic level, but also in terms of the operational level. I mean, simply just the transference of particular skills and technologies. You know, I mean, it was it was uh, Hezbollah, for example. That taught Hamas how to use suicide vests. You know, a sheer terrorist organization in Lebanon, backed by Iran, um, they transferred the technology to members of Hamas who've been expelled from Israel, um, that, that who were then able to take that technology back into Israel and use it in a series of bus bombings, um, and, and then move that technology on further. Uh, but you see this happening again and again and again and again across ideological boundaries. Uh, temporal and, and also geographic boundaries and distances as well. It's it, it, it's really worth having that breadth of perspective um, because it helps you to to, to spot, I think, trends. Um, and what it helped me spot when, when I was doing the research for this was the central role that government plays in creating and sustaining the conflict that it is actually confronting when it gets its response wrong. Um, and that, that was something that came... I wouldn't have got from just looking at one conflict. You really had to, 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 to read as widely and as deeply as you could to sort of really solidify that insight. Um, and that's, that's ultimately why I wrote the book because I wanted people to, to have all that information accessible in one place.
1: Well, Tom, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we let you go, first, congratulations again on the book. And also, could you share what's what's next for you, or what your next project is looking like?
0: So the uh, <laughs> the big lesson that I learned from this, and, and 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 you know, I'm a dilettante. This is something that I do in my spare time. I, you know, I have a day job, um, and so this this is this is something that I, I I spend a lot of my time working away from home. And this is something that, that fills my evenings when I'm working in a place like uh, you know Baghdad, for example. I, I wrote a large chunk of this book sitting in Dojo's diner and in the green zone in Baghdad. Um, but but what the big lesson I learned was try and write something a little bit more accessible, a little bit more popular, and a little bit shorter next time. Uh, so a colleague and I are currently uh, exploring um, uh, the framework that we might use to write a book on you know, 12 terrorist attacks that changed the world as our sort of working title. Uh, and I, the idea being to, to bring up a lot of these themes, but in a much more accessible kind of airport friendly manner where people might pick up a 200-page book and, and read it on a flight uh, and get something out of it and get entertained by it or or, or um, at least engaged by it. But, you know, they're, they're not having to plonk down, you know, huge huge sums of their hard-earned cash to get a, a doorstop of a book. They can, in fact, you know, pick up a, a nice, cheap, easy, accessible read. So that that's the plan at the moment. We, we've got our 12 uh, terrorist incidents lined up, I think. Um, And so the research is sort of just starting to get underway.
1: Well, best of luck with that. And thank you again for being on the show today.
0: Beth, it was absolutely my pleasure.
1: Avoiding the terrorist trap, why respect for human rights is the key to defeating terrorism by Tom Parker is available now. Thanks for listening to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.